0: The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, we're in Matthew 27. Uh, and just to give you kind of a word of advance notice, uh, staying in Matthew 27, but that's also because... Uh, on the, the Lord's Day morning, Easter morning, will be in Matthew 27 and 28. So I thought to, to do a sequence here, uh, Good Friday and Easter, to stay in one place. So uh, we're looking this, morning, uh, this evening at Matthew 27, verses 45 to 61. So we're continuing our reading from the call to worship, moving on to the death of Jesus and even the burial of Jesus. Uh, and as we approach that, uh, we, we continue to, to see and hear uh, really the solemnity of, of these verses, right? These are solemn verses uh, where we see the King of Glory uh, suffering and dying. Uh, but it is, it is a glorious reality that we see Him as He does. Uh, so let me, let me pray and uh, as we approach these words, uh, let us do so with prepared hearts. Oh, Father, as we come now to the the proclamation of Your Word. Lord, we thank You that You are a God who has so revealed Yourself to us. We know, Lord, that You reveal Yourself in creation such that we can open our eyes and see and behold the glory of the world and know that You are a God who is a Creator. But, Lord, we can't, we can't look at the skies and we can't look at the flowers and conclude that You are a Redeemer. And so You must tell us You must tell us who you are. You must tell us who we are. You must tell us what you require of us. And so, Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself not only generally in creation, but especially in the revelation of your word. So, Father, as we come to these sacred verses, we pray that your Spirit would rest upon us with the reality of our sin and the reality of our Savior and lead us to the cross that we might indeed cast away all our sinful pride and confess none other but Christ alone. Bless now the reading and hearing and proclamation of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God, Matthew 27 at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour... And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But when others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, sitting opposite the tomb. Amen. The grass withers in the flower phase, but the Word of God abides forever. And as I said, uh, meditations on the suffering and death of Christ is good and right on a good Friday, uh, preparing our hearts for the Lord's Supper, which is a good and, and right thing. But I want to um, acknowledge something to you here on the front end, and I'm going to use a, a golf metaphor, which might seem a little bit irreverent or out of place at this moment. Uh, I'm going to tee the ball up, but I'm going to waggle my club in front of the ball a whole lot before I hit the ball. Now, some of you who play golf or know golf know that some golfers, they take forever to actually hit the ball. They're sitting there practice swinging and wagging their club back and forth. and It's like, come on, hit the ball already, would you? And there's going to come a point where you're going to say, come on now, hit the ball, would you? But I'm just acknowledging I'm going to waggle my club in front of this ball a bit. okay? And I'll let you know when I'm about to swing, but I'm going to do a bit of waggling. And I'm doing that on purpose now because you Good Friday folks you're a wonderful crowd to preach to because I tend to kind of take advantage of the fact that captive audience a bit more, we can maybe press a bit. Uh, We can go maybe a bit deeper than we would on Sunday morning. And that's the plan. Uh, I hope you don't mind uh, using a bit of pastoral license in doing so, but I'm at least admitting it on the front end, okay? Now, Look with me again at Matthew 27 and verse 50. It says, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew tells the narrative of the death of Christ and. Uh, notice how from that point there is this kind of rapid-fire succession of great consequences. Verse 51, the curtain is torn in the temple, symbolizing the division between uh, the holy God and sinful humanity, a rending asunder, having access. And continuing in verse 51, there is an earthquake and the rocks are splitting. Uh, verse 52, tombs are open. There is a general resurrection Uh, I am just as fascinated about that as you are, and I intend to not make any additional comment about that. Maybe it's a good thing for another time, perhaps. But fascinating still, that as Jesus dies, tombs are opened. There is also the response to His death there, and the accompanying signs in verse 54, Truly this was the Son of God. Now we know this. You know this. Uh, We know this and believe this with all of our hearts. And it is good and right and true that we believe this, that Jesus has died for our sins. Jesus died for us. The death of Christ was a substitutionary death for all of the sins of all of God's people, that there is not an ounce of the Savior's blood that is spent in vain, but that all of your sins are covered by all of His blood. It is efficacious for the pardoning of our sinful debt, for the satisfaction of the wrath of God justly towards our sins. Jesus died for me. You should say that again in your heart. Jesus has died for me. Yes, we believe that. This is what we call atonement in the Scriptures. Jesus has died for us. But there are layers to this just like the onion that you peel back more and more. There are layers to this reality, and the growing Christian is able to peel some of those layers back and, as it were, peer a bit more deeply into the mysteries and wonders of the death of the Son of God for our sins And say, let let me linger longer on this reality and say, what is happening here? Now, or I could illustrate it this way. Uh, When you see a sign that says danger, like edge or cliff, or you know, steep drop-off, right? When you see a sign that says that there are two types of people, one type of person sees the sign and says, I better not get any closer. Let me step back from that edge. And there are others of you who see that sign and say, I wonder what's down there. So you want to creep closer to the very edge that you're being warned not to approach because it's dangerous potentially, right? And I confess to you of being something of an edge sneaker. Why don't they want me to see what's down there? Why is it so dangerous? I want to get closer to that cliff. And I confess to you that that's my intention tonight, to to take you closer to the edge of the cliff. Whether you want to go or not. (laughs) As we ask some questions. And and again, acknowledging that this is something of a three-part series that I've done, actually, over the last couple of years. Where I've been asking the question that I think people are fascinated by, but don't tend to really pursue an answer to. And it's this. Where was Jesus between Friday and Sunday. We know Jesus died, and we know Jesus is resurrected. But I think for most Christians, their thoughtful reflection about that just kind of stops at the surface of saying, Jesus died on a Friday and was raised on a Sunday, happy Easter. Now that's good and right, and we should believe that. But there are other questions to ask about this really multiple questions that we've been unpacking over the last several years in different ministry contexts. One of those was, between Friday and Sunday, where is Jesus' human soul? Jesus has a human soul. And we labored a long time in a Sunday school class answering the question, what do we mean when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell? Where is the human soul of Jesus in the intervening time between the crucifixion and the resurrection? We spent time on that already, and you might say, well, that's interesting. I want to know more about that. Well, that's not what we're focusing on tonight, because we already have. We've also asked the question, where is Jesus' human body between Friday and Sunday? We asked that last Good Friday, so I'm kind of building over a series of Good Friday messages here, actually. We looked in Good Friday 2022 about the human body of Jesus, that Jesus in his human body was buried for you, so... 2023, and here's the question to ask. Maybe you've never asked it before. When Jesus died on Friday, where does Jesus' divine nature go? Jesus is the Son of God. We know that. But what of Jesus' divine nature can we say between Friday and Sunday. And you might say, good grief, are these the type of things that you think about sitting in your office all, you know, throughout the week? And the answer is, well, yeah, <laughs> actually. And I want to invite you to come with me in thinking about this. What does it mean in verse 27, chapter 27, verse 50, when it says, he yielded up his spirit? What would you say? We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that. But in order to speak about these things, in order to speak about these things in a faithful, orthodox, biblical way, uh, it it involves some kind of necessary, again, club waggling, uh, uh, ground clearing to make sure we're all understanding the same things when we're talking about Jesus. Something of a review of these essential points about Jesus. Some of the most essential things that the Christian church believes about Jesus, we, we must understand. These mysteries... That, that are something of an edge cliff that we have to creep up to, and we can know that these are true because God has told us, but, but, but I want to present them to you in something of an increasing depth to say, come deeper with me now, deeper, 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 as we peer deeper into the mysteries of the person of Jesus Christ. And again, you Good Friday folks, you can handle this. This is good. This is a good and healthy exercise for us to do together. So let's think about these things together. Let's think about the fact That we believe that God is a trinity. One God eternally dwelling in three persons. One divine essence, three divine persons. The Father is God, uncreated. The Son is God, eternally begotten of the Father. And the Spirit is God, eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are all one living and true God. And what do we celebrate at Christmas? Of course, that the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, takes to Himself a human nature in what we call the Incarnation. Literally, the enfleshment of God. The enfleshment of the Son of God. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The eternally divine Logos of the Father, the eternally divine Son of the Father, takes to Himself real true humanity. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The second person of the eternal Trinity enters time, assumes humanity, and when he assumes humanity, he assumes the stuff of humanity, namely, a real body and a real human soul. A true body and a reasonable soul, our catechism says. And also, we know from Philippians 2, verse 6, that though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, the second person of the Trinity, enfleshed in the one we call Jesus. And that can be a bit complicated to talk about sometimes. Jesus is God, Jesus is man. How much is He of each kind? Very God, very man, fully God, fully man. Uh, This is the language of what we call, right? So we should take another step down, deeper from just the acknowledgement of the Incarnation into the way we talk about the Incarnation and the way we talk about what it means that the Son of God has taken to Himself true humanity such that we call this reality the hypostatic union of these natures. That these two natures, divine and human, dwell in the one person of Christ. Christ is 100% God. And He is 100% man. That these two natures dwell in one person. There are not two Jesuses. There is one Jesus. And the one person of Jesus is Himself fully God and fully man. Verily God, verily man in in the language of the creed. That the same Christ who is able to heal the sick, feed the crowds, raise Lazarus, is the same Christ who gets hungry, gets tired, and he needs to sleep. Take another step closer to the edge. The way that the church has formulated the way we should talk about this, because it can get confusing, right? You start saying all these, all these terminology and language and I'm trying to keep these things straight. How do I keep these things straight? Well, the, the church helps us because it articulates by way of creeds and confessions exactly what we mean and the church has summarized what we mean when we say Jesus is one person with two natures in what we call the Creed of Chalcedon in 451 AD that the human nature of Jesus and the divine nature of Jesus dwell together together in the one person of Jesus, and these two natures don't mix together. They don't intermingle, as it were. They dwell in the one person of Jesus without separation, mixture, or division. Listen to these very specific words that we believe in one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, "...to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the distinction of the natures by being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved, concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two natures, but one and the same Son, only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ." Or, to use the words of Paul in Titus 2.13, He is our great God and our great Savior. He is both God Himself and our very flesh, the God-man. You might say, well, that's interesting. Do you have any more? Yes. Take another step with me, if you can. The way we talk about these two natures in the one person is called, be patient with me now, The communication of properties in the hypostatic union. The communication of properties. That whatever is true of the nature is true of the person. And what is true of one nature is not necessarily true of the other nature. And nature predicates to the person but not to the other nature. Because there is one person of Christ who acts and lives. This is why, if you've ever wondered, this is why we can say that Jesus slept in Mark 4 without suggesting that God is off the clock. This is why we can speak about in Matthew 24 when Jesus says, I don't know the day of my return and not suggest that God himself is not omniscient. And more importantly, this is why we can say, this language of the communications of properties in the hypostatic union, this is why we can say that on the cross, the Son of God died. That's hard to say because there is this reflex in you that that says, is that right to say God, the Son of God, dies? With respect to His human nature, Jesus died. He is dead. So much so that there is a separation between the human body and the human soul of Jesus, which is exactly what happens when we die. There is a separation of body and soul where Jesus' human soul is in heaven and His human body is in the tomb. And here's where we find ourselves. When the human body of Jesus is cold and lying dead on a slab of stone in a Middle Eastern tomb, wrapped in a burial shroud, and the human soul of Jesus has departed to paradise into heaven, what can we say about the second person of the Trinity and his location? Are you with me? That was all introduction. That was all club waggling. So let me just hit the ball now, shall we? By asking and answering these questions. Was Jesus God in the womb of Mary? Yes. We have no kind of stammer or stumble to answer the question, yes. Of course he was. Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, yes, of course is Jesus still God in the tomb? There's something about the way we think about that question is well, you might stammer a bit to give the answer to that where we're very quick to give the answer to is Jesus God in the womb? Yes. What about the tomb? Do you see? What is true about the divine nature of Jesus between Friday and Sunday? You've got options, perhaps. You could say, well, the second person of the Trinity, as the eternal divine locus of the Father, has returned to heaven, kind of boomeranged back to whence he came, and he'll come back for the resurrection and then go back in, in, uh, in, the, in the ascension. Or you could say, well, you know, I don't know, maybe the second person of the Trinity is just kind of floating around somewhere. I don't know. If you're Mormon, you'll say he went to New York and told Joseph Smith where to find the golden tablets. You could say any number of wild conjectures that end up confusing what we mean when we say in the Apostles' Creed, he descended into hell and come up with some wild thought that ends with a, a made-up doctrine about purgatory and anything else. But those would all be unbiblical, unsatisfactory, and heretical Because, again, the creed of Chalcedon and and the church has confessed that the scriptures teach that these two natures of Jesus Christ, in hypostatic union, His divinity and His humanity exist in the one person of Jesus without separation, mixture, or division. Listen very carefully. The incarnation was not a temporary reality. The incarnation is an eternal reality. When the Son of God took upon a human nature to His person, it was not momentarily laid aside for a few days while the body of Jesus lay in a tomb. The dead body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus is in the tomb, the eternal, uncreated, sovereign, second person of the Trinity at that very moment. The Trinity in the second person, remains united to a dead body. The same body that healed the sick, the same body that gave sight to the blind, the same body that laid hands on the lepers and raised the little girl from death to life, that body, which is in one sense totally lifeless and dead, is in another sense the incarnate Son of God. Still, In the language of the Belgian Confession, Article 19, his divine nature remains united with his human nature even when he is lying in the grave and his deity never ceases to be with him. The human body of Christ is dead, but that dead body is the incarnate Son of God. He was God in the womb. He is God in the tomb. Even as a dead man, the eternal second person of the Trinity continues to live, rule, and sustain creation in union with a dead body. Jesus has died, Jesus is dead, and Jesus will live again. And it is real death that precedes a real resurrection, and you might be asking yourself the question, you know what? Why does any of that matter to kind of go down the rabbit trail and peer across the edge and go into the depths a bit? Why does any of it matter? Well, because it is in that same body at this moment which is dead will one day be resurrected, ascended to reign. That is the same body that Jesus will occupy at the Father's right hand. And it is the surest evidence in the world to you that one day when you will, as we all will, lie in a grave we will be raised Romans 6 verse 10 says for the death he died he died to sin once for all and the life he lives he lives to God so you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ so we have this by way of a point of application if you've kind of suffered the the trail here, we have this as a reminder that you live as a Christian believer in union with Jesus Christ. Your life, the Apostle Paul says, is hidden with God in Christ. When Jesus died and you believe in Him, that means you died too. And when Jesus is raised, that means you were raised with Him spiritually. Spiritually. And that we live in this union with Christ in this body now. But you are just like me because it is in that body that you struggle with sin. You struggle with sin and temptation. You struggle in disobedience. You struggle, as it were, seemingly tripping over your own feet, trying to walk the narrow road. And Jesus lays dead in the grave to atone for and pay for the very sins that we have struggled with in this flesh as a reminder to us that one day the death that He has died and the resurrection which He has experienced is the death that we have died and the same resurrection which we will experience. And one day, Christian believer, it's hard even to say it. You won't struggle anymore. You just won't because you will no longer have the capacity to even struggle. Disobedience will not even be a category for which you to operate in, because Jesus Christ has so gone to the depths of atonement for you in His lifeless body, that so surely shall you live because of His victorious resurrection. So because of what Christ has done, because of the fullness and the incredible depth of what Christ has done, leads to this incredible height of mercy and love and grace and forgiveness, which we will experience one day in its fullness. But we're not there yet. So we still struggle. And as a a kind of a final word of this, we could say, the same Christ... Who did not even desert his lifeless body in the tomb will not desert you in your Christian pilgrimage. For all of your struggle, for all of your anxiety and fears, the same Christ who did not even desert his own dead body will never forsake you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, What a wonderful truth it is of who your son is and what he has done. And so, great God, would you allow us, even in very small ways, to see more of the glories of Christ, to apprehend more of his love for us, that we might indeed grow in obedience to him and one day, Lord, see him face to face. Bless us, Lord, we pray in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit EtchingtonepC.org. May God bless and keep you.